Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the University of Guelph on 93.3 FM, or maybe you're listening online to wherever you listen to your podcasts, or perhaps at tonowtheland.com. Today on the show, I'm here with Paul and Jeremy, two biologists from Cornell University, whose paper I read recently. Uh, the paper is called The Effects of Red Fox Scent on Winter Activity Patterns of Suburban Wildlife, Evaluating predator-prey interactions, and the importance of groundhog burrows in promoting biodiversity. It was published recently, September 23rd, 2020, in the journal uh, Urban Ecosystems. Paul, Jeremy, do y'all want to introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Paul Curtis. I'm a professor of wildlife science at Cornell University. I'm a wildlife biologist and ecologist and been studying animal behavior and population dynamics for the past 30 plus years. And I'm Jeremy. I was uh, an undergrad at Cornell and I was one of Paul's students. He was one of my two advisors and one of the other two co-authors on this paper, uh, Paul Kerr, Jeremy Searle, and uh, I was in the ecology and evolution program under him. Okay, can you tell me about the, the, the program first? Right, the program at Cornell uh, it's both an undergraduate and a graduate program. Uh, it is for uh, anyone who's interested in biological sciences. Um, they, as an undergrad, it isn't a formal major. It's a subcategory of the biological sciences major. And uh, it covers all aspects of, of ecology, evolution, and any related type of topics in the middle. Um, Paul Curtis was actually in the Department of Natural Resources, and my other advisor, Jeremy Searle, was in the Department of Ecology and Evolution, but there's a lot of overlap between the two departments uh, sometimes. Uh, his department is typically more applied, whereas the one that I was in was more theoretical, and this paper that I wrote uh, was a good marrying of the two. It was both applied and theoretical, um, and it was uh, while it was mostly ecology, it did had some evolution elements to it as well. Um, and the grad program is a, I believe they offer a PhD and uh, some masters in some cases uh, in the ecology and evolution department. And the same goes for the natural resources departments too. Um, and there's all sorts of topics that people have explored from uh, this paper was on mammals, but a lot of people in both departments work on birds, insects, plants, disease ecology, epidemiology, any sort of relation to that. And uh, it's, it's very broad, um, though historically, I think Cornell has been really well known for its community ecology program. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's a lot of diversity there in terms of what you can study and the type of students that uh, are recruited to the types of programs that are offered at Cornell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit of context for the bioregion that, that y'all were doing the studies in and where Cornell is at? Bioregion is in uh, the Finger Lakes area of central New York State. Uh, the Finger Lakes are a very well-known region. Uh, it's a wine country, a lot of outdoor recreational activities. To the south of the Ithaca campus, uh, you get in the Appalachian Plateau ecoregion and it's rolling hills and forests for the most part. To the north of the Ithaca campus, you get in uh, uh, the glaciated Lake Ontario Plain and it's a lot of uh, farm country, uh, less, less woods. And so at the south end of Cuyahoga Lake where Ithaca and Cornell University is at, we're sort of right at the junction between those two larger ecoregions. Paul, do you feel like that offers students at Cornell a lot more diversity to learn from? Are, are, are y'all taking advantage of these two bioregions with the students there? Absolutely. Uh, the, it's really important. It, students can study fisheries and uh, agriculture related work uh, to the north very easily. But if they want to study ecology, biology uh, issues and larger uh, forest land block, they simply can go to the hills to the south. 
We have uh, uh, near campus the Arnott Teaching and Research Forest, which is a 4,000 acre property the university owns uh, for field research and teaching for students on campus in a woodland setting. And about an hour to the north, we have the Cornell Biological Field Station on Oneida Lake where uh, students can study fisheries and aquatic sciences and uh, learn about the, that area east of Syracuse, New York. So again, we take advantage of both of those eco-regions. That's awesome, that's awesome. It's nice to place yourself on the land and, and what kind of interactions you might be having with the local land base there. Uh, Jeremy, for your paper, you, got, you wrote out three main goals to your thesis. Can you tell us about your three main goals to your thesis? First of all, the context of the paper is that Eastern cottontails are these rabbits that are local to the New York area. And one of their major predators is the red fox. And part of the reason why we know this is they're one of their major predators is because not only have they collected like diet samples from red foxes um, and found like a significant portion of their scats and their sign to have, have evidence of cottontails in their diet, but also there was a study recently that Unfortunately, eastern cottontails had been introduced into a region of Italy, and the red foxes that were already in Italy immediately began specializing on them. Mm. So there's this obvious link between um, the eastern cottontail and the red fox. What hadn't been explored is whether there's an olfactory, olfactory relationship between the two. So whether the cottontails are able to sense the red foxes and then modify their behavior accordingly. And so the, the idea was to study whether this interaction between the two was how, how deeply ingrained that was. And in this sense, we studied eastern cottontails and red foxes in a winter suburban ecosystem. So in the local Ithaca area around Cornell University owned land, we wanted to look at whether the, the perceived predation risk of eastern cottontails to red foxes was a greater stressor than that of winter itself. So in winter, a lot of species take uh, advantage of local refuges from uh, the elements such as burrows or under bushes or you know, local outcroppings that they can find just to shield themselves from the elements, but they also may be using it to escape predators. And so we were wondering if the scent of a predator was nearby, would that cause eastern cottontails to abandon their, their colonized safe shelters that they had already been using for the winter? And if that relationship exists, if the eastern cottontails could sense the predators and then abandon them, what that would tell us about how, I don't know, deeply ingrained in evolution the two were linked. And by default of our study design, we were able to observe all sorts of different species that were there at the burrows themselves too, besides eastern cottontails, because um, burrows are important landscape features for a lot of species to use. It isn't always as cut and dry as one, one animal occupies one burrow. In some cases, many animals occupy many burrows and, and many animals occupy a single burrow together. So there is a whole range of natural history type questions and ecology questions, and even some evolutionary biology questions that were important to us in the course of this project. That's why I got onto your paper, because I was so curious about this context of Eastern cottontails and groundhog burrows. I mean, I, in my research, you know, the native pygmy rabbit, and uh, their European counterparts are the only rabbits that dig burrows. Eastern cottontail rabbits do not dig their own burrows. They usually rest, sleep, or occupy in what you might call a form, which would be like a small depression scraped in the earth or compressed mats of vegetation or brush piles, as I've read it and as I've learned. I've heard of one account before your paper from a friend of mine who saw cottontail tracks go down into a burrow but I've never read about this occurrence or seen it before. And can you, what did your research show? Are they using the burrows? Is, is this a, a normal phenomena? Is this just a population in New York that's doing this? Well, it's funny that you bring that up because uh, in the course of writing this paper, 
first of all, some, some of the other professors in our department didn't really believe that cottontails use burrows either. So yeah. that, that is not an uncommon idea to have. Um, I had to do some digging in order to find studies that evidence that cottontails had burrows. One was from Michigan in like the 40s or the 50s. So it was decades and decades old and it was very brief. It was like an aside that was part of the paper like cottontails were also observed at the burrows that we were studying. And uh, I think the other, the other experiment or study that I found was someone created artificial burrows out of like oil drums or something. And it, it sort of mimicked burrows. So it wasn't entirely a one-to-one ratio, but our study was, was very clear in the fact that cottontails use burrows because we set up camera traps, camera trail cameras right at the burrows we were studying and we literally have pictures of them going into the burrows and coming out of the burrows and some in like mid state of partial entry partial exit from the burrows so it's it's very clear to us that they do use burrows obviously these burrows were not dug by them though there are other rabbit species that do dig their burrows like the the European rabbit digs its own burrows out in Europe, obviously, but the Eastern cottontail does not, but, but it is happy to, to uh, utilize the burrows that are available to it in the ecosystems that it inhabits. Paul, in your work, you've, you've been around doing this work longer than Jeremy and I have been alive. Um, have, <laughs> has this been something that's come up for you before? Have you noticed this? before or was this sort of uh you, you weren't sure about it when you heard about the idea no i was fairly certain uh rabbits use burrows uh i grew up in uh, the midwest in uh, northern ohio and as a as a teenager uh, i hunted cottontails during the winter months with uh, uh family members and we raised and trained beetles to uh, to chase rabbits in the winter months, and it mm -hmm. was very clear from me being in the field in the in the 1970s that rabbits definitely use burrows in the in the northern and midwestern states during the winter months. It provides safe harbor for winter weather, and it provides safe harbor for predators. And many times, uh, uh, the dogs would be chasing a rabbit, and that's the first place their head is their safe spot is their burrow. And so I. I was confident that we would see plenty of cottontail rabbits using burrow just based on my uh, field experiences growing up. That's awesome. I love that. I love that the paper reveals this thing that's already known, but also like not described in the literature at all. There's no, or very few mentions. I mean, I poured through my kind of extensive library and talked to some trackers I know and I feel like I'm often correcting people, you know, like, no, 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 they, they don't use burrows. And then here I am proven wrong. And I, I love that. I love that I'm challenged on this, this idea. But I also had a question though, because right now the groundhogs may be occupying the burrows hibernating. So are the, are the cottontails and, and other wildlife using these burrows while the groundhogs are in them? Or is that unknown or... I would say that that's, that's from our quasi study experiments that we didn't, we couldn't actually answer that kind of question. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know about groundhog burrows is that they're quite extensive. Uh, yeah. they're, they're a, there's a multitude of tunnels. There's a multitude of chambers. The, some, some burrows can extend for hundreds of meters. They're huge. And part of our study did show that multiple species were occupying burrows at the same time. Um, we had an image of a, of a skunk exiting a burrow right after a cottontail exited a burrow with no photos in between of one entering first. So that implies that, that both were in the, the burrow at the same time. As far as whether groundhogs are in there, we presumably thought that these burrows were abandoned. So like groundhog can obviously make new burrows. And so it, it, it seems, it might seem more likely that the, the burrows that we use were abandoned rather than having the groundhog that's actually using them during the winter in them as well. 
but we don't know at this point. Um, we would have to put temperature loggers inside of the yeah. burrows and and all sorts of like monitoring going in. And that just wasn't available to us at, for our study design, at least. I can imagine a big party down underground and the groundhogs getting all grumpy that everybody's trying to wake them up or something. Like yeah. that. All these skunks and rabbits and whatever moving through. Who, who, what were the other wildlife that you saw down visiting the burrows? Yeah, we saw uh, about or upwards of 22 different species. Um, most of them were mammals, obviously, because, uh, I mean, birds can just fly up into trees if they're trying to escape predators, or they have roosts up there too. But we saw all sorts of things at the entrances of the burrows, and many of which went into the burrows. So we have the cottontail, which was the most numerous, it was the most numerous species that actually went in. Then we had mice, we had striped skunks, we had domestic cats, so both pe people's local house cats and feral cats, Virginia opossums, squirrels, and then we had a range of carnivores. We had weasels, bobcats, coyotes, an American mink. Uh, we had a gray fox, but no red fox. Um, and then we had some birds that were seen just huddling in the entrance, like, the, like a blue jay, a dark-eyed junco, a northern cardinal. Um, we actually nearby to some of these sites there's a there's a New York state run pheasant operation and some pheasants escaped from the fences and were roaming around some of the burrows so we had some of these these uh unwanted species there too and uh but yeah no red foxes so there were no red foxes at the study sites that you that you saw on your cameras but can you tell us about the the scent posts or the the scenting uh, I'm not even sure what you call them. The scent wicks that we used. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we we applied we applied red fox urine to these burrows as a means of testing the the hypothesis of whether per a perceived predation risk affects rabbit behavior. These these scent wicks are something that Paul actually found. Yeah. Scent wicks are used commonly to dispense odors, not only for research but you know for hunting. Sometimes the mm -hmm. odors can be in there. For example, doe urine and and people will apply the wicks uh, near a spot that they're hunting to try to attract a, a buck deer into the, the doe urine scent. So scent wicks are commonly available on the market and they made us a really good tool to dispense uh, the fox urine in this study because uh, they hold a, a small amount of urine and then release it slowly in the air when the temperatures are above freezing. When you said temperatures are above freezing, that, that course correlates to a question I had. Um, I know when I bake and I, I, I bake a lot and I, I when you use chocolate in, in a recipe that you think will be consumed cold, they suggest you know adding more salt because the cold diminishes the flavor. The flavonoids can't can't sort of blossom and bloom well. And I was wondering that about the, the urine samples. How uh, is their effectiveness diminished in the colder temperatures? Well, I, I hope a lot of animals aren't actually drinking the urine like they'd be yes. eating it. Yes, yeah. But yeah. Uh, we, I do have some pretty interesting pictures of uh, some squirrels biting the wicks and uh, some, I think I had an opossum bite the wick too. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a good book that I read as part of this project called Predator-Prey Dynamics, The Role of Olfaction. Um, by a guy named Michael Conover, who is a biologist out in Utah. Um, and part of, part of his book was explaining how scents work and uh, like the role of uh, turbulent updrafts in wind and dispersal of scent. But part of the book also looked at the effects of temperature on scent and scent actually is more potent on colder mm. and less sunny days than it is on hotter ones. So in terms of scent dispersal, it might actually have been more effective in the winter, though it is a good point that you bring up that sometimes the wicks did freeze, which is why uh, we did our best to re-wick the scent wicks or re-dip the scent wicks every few days so that we could keep the scent as potent as possible. But that was obviously one of, one of a, that, that might've been an issue at some point, but we did our best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another scent question was they, the scent wicks were, were spray painted, if I'm correct. 
And That's would, would that scent be a deterrent? Well, I mean, there's a lot of artificial man-made scents out there in the suburban ecosystems, right? There's the houses, sure. there's yeah. the cars, there's the, there's the lamp posts, there's all sorts of different things. So the Scentwicks came in a bright neon orange. Um, and I think this links to what Paul was saying that, that sometimes you want to attract certain species. Um, and so making it very conspicuous was, would be important for hunters and trackers in that sense. Um, we spray-painted spray painted a matte brown, and then we left it for a couple of days to try and make the scent of the spray paint disperse itself. So, mm-hmm. so there's, we, did, we tried to make sure that that wasn't an issue, but uh, it, it would, it, if anything, it might have just been similar to uh, a lot of the other random scents that species occupy in this human-occupied civilization area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a question. I want to get on to the results, but I have more questions about the setup. Um, I was wondering why you chose camera traps. What, like what's their value versus other methods in collecting data? Yeah, it's really good to use camera traps because it allows us to monitor specific sites uh, essentially 24 seven. So if it doesn't matter whether an animal's coming and going day or night, uh, the camera traps will catch that, that movement and let us know what's using uh, the burrow. If you use something like radio telemetry, sure, you could catch rabbits, put radio collars on them, follow them to burrows and know which burrow they used. Uh, but you wouldn't get a complete picture uh, of other animals going in, in and out as we do with a camera trap or get a complete picture on the number of uses potentially because somebody's got to be out tracking those rabbits uh, if they have radio collars. So camera traps are a relatively inexpensive way to gather a lot of behavioral and population information for a variety of wildlife species. We've used them from everything from, you know, rabbits and squirrels all the way up to, uh, I've used them with tigers and leopards in Bhutan. So, I mean, uh, they can catch about any, any wildlife species that's large enough to trigger the infrared sensor. I remember talking to a mammologist who was studying at the University of Guelph here, and she had set up some traps, some camera traps along the river to capture any wildlife that might be moving along the river corridors there. And she, she reported that she, she got tons of photos of people curious about the camera traps, one photo of a raccoon, but nothing else. So it sounds like from your paper, you, you, the camera traps were incredibly effective. Yeah, we had the camera traps set up pretty low to the ground and along abandoned uh, or not used during the winter sites. So the there was, I don't think there was a single instance of any people getting or finding our traps uh, just because of the fact that they were so well used. And also I put a I put a little warning on the back of the camera traps that if, if they were stolen, we'd prosecute you and find you. <laughs> so, so we, we uh, did our best to try and deter theft, but uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty effective at, at just looking at the species that we wanted to, because it was just facing a burrow. It wasn't, it what the, the, the angle of the camera wasn't super wide. It was, it was, it was wide enough to catch, the size of the species that we wanted, but it was narrow enough to make sure it was those. We use camera traps uh, quite a bit in our deer research also. Uh, we use them to uh, identify ear tag deer and do yeah. estimates of uh, abundance using mark recapture computer models. And we've tested a couple of different ways to do that. Originally, when I did the first work more than a decade ago, we used baited sites and just run the uh, trail cameras for about a week and on an area the size of the Cornell campus which is roughly 1400 acres for core campus with a dozen cameras uh, for seven days we get somewhere around 2,000 pictures of deer wow yeah in, in a week and so it made a, a really large data set to do mark recapture modeling the problem with baiting deer is it's illegal to feed deer in New York State so if we want to use it for just natural population surveys, we've got to use 
different methods. So we've been more recently experimenting using cameras in uh, unbaited sites at a higher density. And it looks like we can still get very good estimates of abundance, but we have to run the cameras for longer periods of time than one week, usually about four to six weeks. It's also really interesting that depending on the species that you're using and also your geographic location in the United States, the different methods to bait your species. So I know Kat Sun, one of Paul's grad students, used a combination of, of artificial strawberry and smoke scent to attract her black bears that she was looking at. Um, but down in Louisiana, they use Krispy Kreme donuts hung up from a tree. So, so people get really creative with, uh, with the ways that they are able to attract their, their focal species. I think the donuts would attract me. I, you'd get me all over that camera. Yeah, if I was just walking through the woods and saw them, I'd be all over it. When we were doing black bear research at Fort Drum in northern New York, uh, Jefferson County, we were using a combination of bacon and sardines suspended from the tree. <laughs> that was really good at drawing bears in food. I want to get I want to get to the results. I want to hear about some of the things that you've learned about. Was the fox urine effective as a deterrent for the cottontail rabbits? Uh, no, it was not. It was not effective at all. Um, we focused on eastern cottontails primarily, but we also included analyses for four other species, uh, mice, striped skunks, domestic cats, and Virginia possums. Domestic cats are carnivores like red foxes. If there was some sort of interaction between them, you might have thought it would have been like intraspecific competition. Um, we saw no effects for any of these five species of the urine. On, on burrow activity by any of them, with the exception of striped skunks, which are, again, a carnivore, just like red foxes. We followed this up with an analysis of the climate itself, like the temperature and the snow, and that seemed to better predict skunk activity at burrows than eastern, than, uh, uh, than urine, red fox urine did. And this is explained by the fact that striped skunks utilize a semi-state of hibernation in the winter. It's called a, a carnivorin lethargy or a, a shallow torpor. Um, and so for species that would need to be sheltered from the, from the elements for at least some periods of time during each day, um, you would imagine burrows would be an ideal location. Um, but the effect of urine was non-existent for any of these species really. Can you tell me more about that striped skunk? Um, what, what were the names you used for it? Ever in lethargy and shallow daily torpor. Shallow daily torpor. So I know that they're not as active. I, I've, I've seen that. But then I also tend to see, like I just, yesterday I think it was, I, I trailed a skunk for a while. And so I'm wondering like, what are the conditions that, what are the conditions for a skunk to, get up and start going around? Does it have to be a warm spell? Is it just no matter the weather after, you know, two, three days, the skunk's hungry, so they're going to get up and go for a walk? Or what, what are the conditions that motivate a skunk to get up? Yeah, skunks are most active on warmer nights with less wind. I mean, uh, just like any other animal in winter, they've got to thermoregulate, and they really don't like super cold, windy nights. And that's when you're most likely to find them in burrows in many cases. And then in uh, late February, March, you start to get into, in the skunk breeding season too. And so again, you get those warm nights uh, and they can be really active and, and be out and about. If you get a thaw between snowstorms or uh, just some, some calm nights with uh, above freezing temperatures. I took your information from your, from your paper and I took the dates that you provided and the week frame, the frameworks of weeks that you broke up the study into. And I, I went through um, other variances to see if like there are other correlations to anything. And something I noticed and I'm not sure you'd have to double check this yourself because you have better understanding of, of your findings but it seemed like full moons seem to have effects on use of burrows. And I'm not sure if this is a thing or not, but I was wondering if it's like full moon, hunt, more animals are out hunting because they've got better light or like larger predators are possibly out hunting, coyotes, maybe the foxes. And 
on the, the week of December 4th, uh, week three, uh, December 4th was a full moon. And uh, full moon was on January 21st, week seven on the first day of treatment. And I think if I remember correctly that those numbers correlated to higher occurrences of, uh, of Eastern cottontails using the, the burrows. And I was wondering, it's like, are, are Eastern cottontails aware of hunting strategies? Are they aware of like, I'm more visible, I gotta get undercover. Could that be a possibility? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, but could that be something? Anecdotally, uh, I've heard people say that, you know, animals, night, night active animals could be more active on a night with a full moon, but I think it's more important. It's gonna be temperature and snow depth is that it's a thermal regulation that's really important. Yes, they'll take advantage probably of extra light, but uh, you could have a full moon and if it's, uh, you know, well below zero centigrade with a, a 20 mile per hour wind, I would expect that uh, skunks and cocktails are going to be in those burrows just trying to keep them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. I so appreciate getting all the details of your findings because then I can look into other tangential ideas. Um, I, I like that idea about the full moon. That was a, that's a good point to bring up. There's, there's a range of, of factors that are, that are made in the decision-making process of both predators and prey. The, the complexity of the natural world is sometimes, like scientists like to simplify everything to really easy categorical numbers, but, but in field biology, the results aren't always so cut and dry as they are in, in super quantitative studies like, like molecular biology or you know, things like that where there, there's a very clear answer. Um, when you're studying things like animal behavior, it's, it's a lot more complex. And personally, I like that. I like the fact that it isn't such an, an easy question to tackle. And it's, and it's fun to tackle too, to, to think about why animal behavior is responding to various different variables. It's, it's, I mean, that's part of what I enjoy most about being a field biologist, that there's, there's always another question about your study that you can come up with. And uh, integrating all the different senses of prey. So in this case, we used olfaction, the scent of smell, um, but also visual sense, uh, uh, auditory sense, um, what they can sense on the ground, what happens if they run over some of the scat and they're like, oh crap, there's, there's, oh crap, literally. Uh, yeah. there, <laughs> there, there's, there's a whole range of different things that factor into animal behavior. And, uh, but, but at some level, like Paul was saying, it, it, it's pretty obvious that it's, it's temperature and like winter itself, but, but the nuances of behavior can be slightly tuned one way or the other from other senses as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that when I'm out in the cold at night and the wind is blowing heavy and the snow is really thick, my, my instinct stills find cover and I'm, I'm pretty far removed from a wilder world around me. So I can imagine that that can be a very real motivation. And something I, I, I learned from the paper was that, you know, maybe I think the question was posed in the paper that maybe the, the, the need for uh, that safe place out of the threat of the weather, that threat of weather is, is more profound than the threat of a fox because the interaction with the fox might be only a few minutes, a few seconds, and it, it's it's not as likely. Whereas the threat of the weather is is imminent; it's there, right right when the rabbit is is is, is just living out in the world. And so, the the seeking the cover in the burrow, even if there was fox urine placed nearby might be more of a, of a it's, it's still a survival tactic to just go explore the burrow spend your time there even if there might be signs of fox nearby because it's going to get you out of the more imminent danger of the cold weather i thought yeah, that was a pretty interesting question or position 
if you were in a survival situation where your plane crashed in the middle of Alaska, would you be worrying about your math final exam next week or about not freezing to death? So I think that's a, a pretty a pretty important thing that animals have to gauge in their decision making. What what do I have to worry about right now or I'll die? So yeah. it's pretty important to get your priorities right when you're in an when you're in an ecosystem that isn't always so easy to live in. I want to take a step back from the paper a little bit and I want to understand how this plays into a larger world of, of wildlife biology and wildlife behavior. Paul, I was wondering what would be some of the implications of this paper or like why is this paper important to the fields of, of biology and studying animal behavior? I think it's important to know the diversity of species that actually use burrows. We have, you know, good understanding that woodchucks create the burrows and use them. I had a strong suspicion uh, cocktail rabbits use the burrows and we verified that, but I had no idea that we'd see all these other species in and around burrow entrances. So from a conservation standpoint, it, they seem to be a very important part of the urban landscape for for wildlife species that are in and around people all the time. So it's, uh, it's important uh, to learn, again, from the camera trapping, the, the diversity of species that, that, that find and use these burrows. Do you know if there's other studies or researchers looking into similar interspecies interactions uh, within these sort of uh, urban, suburban, human anthropogenic environments? Yes, there are many biologists that look at interspecies interactions. Uh, a good example would be Dr. Stan Garrett from Ohio State University. He's been studying coyote and uh, sort of mesomammal interactions in the metro Chicago area for more than a decade. And uh, one of my current grad students, Martin Feehan, is studying urban deer survival and what the primary predators are in, in the urban areas at uh, Fort Drum Reservation. So there are many people out there that are uh, other biologists that are looking at uh, wildlife predator interactions in, in urban landscapes. These, uh, another question I had for you, Paul, was um, what are other ways that you think this paper can be used to mitigate wildlife damage? Like how can we look at this paper to understand ways to minimize conflict between human and animals? I think it's a, the paper shows that even though ecologically we might expect an animal to try to avoid predators, uh, scent may not be a, a strong enough stimulus. And, and again, there's a lots of different types of wildlife repellents on the market, and several of them are scent-based. And uh, the experience with wildlife repellents has been really mixed. Some do work and provide short-term control of damage, for example, reducing uh, deer feeding on uh, landscape ornamentals or agricultural crops, but in the long run, uh, uh, scents eventually wear off and they have, have to be retreated. And so uh, things like exclusion uh, or temporary fencing are much more effective at, at preventing damage than a lot of the, the non-lethal deterrents such as scent. This paper also got me thinking about another methods of control um, for when we think about wildlife damage. And that was in my context in Guelph, Ontario. Um, we talk a lot about, there's a lot of debate and discussion on how to deal with population influxes of Canada geese. They, they are thriving in our riparian environments in the city. They, they thrive probably all over the Northeast, perhaps all over North America. Um, and I was wondering, like a couple of questions. Why are the geese thriving in these urban environments? And is there a way or could there be ways that we could support? And this is this seems maybe a little bit out of touch and I'm not sure, but is there a way that we can support fox ecology as a means of dealing with the geese? Well, the, the Canada goose question is a, a huge uh history there. I could go on for an hour just on that, but I'll try to make it brief. First of all, there's two subpopulations of geese in the, 
in the Atlantic Flyway, Mississippi Flyway, there are what we call the migratory subpopulation uh, that as I remember growing up in the <clears throat> 60s and 70s, the geese had head south every fall. It was predictable. You know, they come through uh, right around uh, October 1st, and then they'd be back in spring as uh, soon as the snow melted on. Late March, early April, they'd be heading north. And that uh, part of the subpopulation still exists. They, they breed up on Hudson Bay uh, uh, area, and they used to winter mostly in the Chesapeake Bay and the Carolinas and migrate back and through the, the, uh, the Atlantic Flyway. What we've learned uh, since then, uh, work by uh, Dr. Rich Malecki with a co-op unit, he did a lot of goose banding all across Northern Alaska a few decades ago and found that their, this migratory flock has relatively low survival and is exposed to a lot of hunting pressure as they migrate north and south. There's a separate subpopulation we call resident Canada geese. Those are the ones that you're referring to. Uh, they're the ones that breed locally. They don't go up to Hudson Bay. They're throughout the Eastern United States, spreading into the Western United States, and their survivorship and reproduction is much higher than the migratory birds, and they only locally migrate. They only go as far south as they have to during the winter months uh, to avoid freeze up and snow. They've got to have open water for roosting at night, and they've got to have some type of grass or green vegetation to feed on. So it's these resident geese, the local breeding geese, or the, their populations exploded during the last two decades. And uh, used to be 30 years ago, 80% of the geese in the Atlantic Flyway were migratory birds and only about 20% were resident. And now that's almost completely flip-flopped. The, the bulk of the birds in the Atlantic Flyway are more of these resident geese that are breeding in and around towns. And we've created an ideal habitat. But what resident geese want, they're grazers. They want fresh green grass to forage on and they have to have it near water so they have an escape or to, they can nest in rear young and have an escape for the young. So by creating mowed lawns and corporate parks and city parks on uh, housing and residential areas next to water structures, ponds, rivers, things like that, we've created ideal goose habitat. We know that this subspecies, subpopulation of resident geese are slightly different subspecies, many of these birds than the migratory bird, Ranicanadensis maximus, which is the largest subspecies. Uh, we thought at one point that was thought they were extinct, but a subpopulation of these birds were found in the Midwest, I believe it was Illinois in the late 1950s. And uh, all the biologists thought, well, this is great, this sub, subspecies isn't extinct. We wanna, we wanna captive breed and we wanna perpetuate this subspecies and they started a captive breeding program which was extremely successful and all the states wanted these resident birds. Uh, they probably historically existed in, in other states at some point in time and uh, so we created a lot of the problem by mm -hmm. establishing these resident local breeding flocks and they've uh, done uh, so well far beyond anybody's imagination and now they're overabundant in many contexts and we have to deal with these uh, resident birds that we created. And is there, is there a way you think that we could be maybe building our, our urban environments that would invite, I mean, foxes are already here, but is there a way to like, I don't know, direct them towards the geese to be like, hey, here's, here's a, a, a strategy for, for you to, to get fed. And here's a strategy for us to deal with this booming population of, of, a, of a bird, which some people might see as a pest. Is, do you know if there's anybody researching that sort of perspective? Uh, you know, people have looked at predation of Canada geese and uh, goose uh, eggs and in, in, uh, in young. And what they basically found, there are very few predators in urban areas that are big enough to take an adult, adult goose. And mm -hmm. adult goose can fend off a fox. A yeah. goose can even hold its own for a short while against a, a, a coyote. Uh, but where they're vulnerable is the egg stage. Once the chicks have hatched and they're mobile, then they can get the water for safety with the adults so that the predators can't get to them. It's, but with, when they're eggs in the nest, they're really vulnerable. And we found that the, 
primary predators on, on goose eggs are raccoons and likely coyotes in some suburban areas. Again, red fox probably aren't large enough that uh, uh, they can uh, forcefully uh, get a, an adult goose off a nest where a coyote can. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that before. I've seen um, quite a few instances of coyotes uh, skulking, for lack of a better word, about the areas where uh, geese are nesting. Uh, one across the river from where I live, and one out by the school where I teach. And yeah, I feel like that's probably one way that I've seen natural predators interacting with coyote or Canada geese in, in the urban environment. And so that opens up another question. Do we want these larger predators like coyotes in urban environment? Because that opens up another host of potential conflicts. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the uh, potential coyote attacks are, are perceived issues, but there have been people killed, children attacked by coyotes in, across the U.S. and Canada. I think the last uh, adult human mortality was by a pair of coyotes in a park in Eastern Canada, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, in New Brunswick. In New Brunswick. So again, yeah. we probably don't want these larger predators in urban landscapes. Mm. I love how the questions breed more questions all the time. That just tells me that there's, there's more room in ecology and evolution for more new scientists to come and answer them. That there's, yeah. there's, there's plenty of questions to be explored, plenty of new fun ideas uh, to look at. Um, a lot of people think nowadays that natural history is dead as a field, that behavioral ecology is dead um, because it was really popular in the 1900s, but you can still integrate uh, principles of natural history into modern work too. Like studies like ours shows that we were investigating at how connected in evolutionary time uh, or if they were connected at all between cottontails and foxes, but but just looking at what what's the behavior and the ecology of the animals that are at burrows there in general, like what what are some other cool random things that we can find too, and and that breeds a whole host of other questions that still haven't been answered. When we think of giving space to maybe new scientists and younger folks coming up, and and participating in in the fields of biology and, and animal behavior. I then get this question that I've been thinking about and I've, I've posted to you in an email, Paul, was um, how do you feel like your role is changing in the field? Uh, like, whereas from when you were younger out in the field a lot more and, and, or perhaps just as much now, but now also as a teacher and a mentor and if you don't mind the phrase elder, helping younger folks like Jeremy to follow their path through this field. Yeah, my role right now is more as a mentor. Uh, in many cases, uh, the graduate students and undergrad research assistants get to do all the fun field research nowadays. I help <laughs> with some uh, training, uh, providing supplies and equipment, helping with study design to make sure that the data that they collect is going to be uh, useful and helpful to answer questions. And then once they've collected data, uh, help with the uh, guiding the, the data analysis and the writing in many cases, so it gets published. So again, my role has changed. It, it's more of a teacher and a mentor now, and, but I still do some field research. I, uh, I do uh, field work on turns. I still do some deer capture work. So I haven't completely left the field, but the, the students get much more of the fun nowadays. Do you feel like that's a role you're, you're, you've settled into and you appreciate? And you and you 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 enjoy? Yes, I very much enjoy uh, working with students. That's a, uh, the primary reason I chose academia as a career. I just like to uh, like to to mentor students and help them uh, design studies and answer questions that they feel are important. Is there anything else that y'all wanted to cover before we wrap it up? I I had something I wanted to end on, which is. My, my relationship with, with uh, my mentors like Paul, um, I have some advice for some perhaps un new undergraduates or high school students who are interested in wildlife uh, and don't really know what to do. And uh, 
I didn't know Paul at the beginning of this project at all. I was working in a mammalogy lab and Jeremy Searle's lab. Um, and then I had the idea to do a project like this. And uh, I needed to find someone who had camera traps and who had specific expertise that could help me answer some of these uh, predator prey, community ecology, behavioral ecology and evolution types of questions. So I had to go out and find people. And I think that's, that's uh, a really important thing the earlier you learn that, that sometimes you have to go out and just ask people. And there are, there are plenty of people out there that are so willing to help you that they, they want people to come and find them and they want to help new students or help answer questions if you're not a student. Um, just, just reaching out to people is, is what gets you in the door. So like when I first started college, I made a list of all the professors that I wanted to work with. And what I did is uh, rather than send them just a generic email, I went to all of their doors. I found all of them in the buildings and knocked on their doors until I got a response. And um, you, you can't imagine the amazement some people have that they're, they're so uh, impressed that people just take the time out of their day to find them and have a personal conversation with them and to explain their interests. And once you have your, your, you've shown that you're more than just some words in an email, that you're a face on a person, you have, you have a lot of interests and that you'd really like to work with these people, then, then people are more likely to help you. And uh, it's, sometimes it may seem daunting, like as, as an undergrad, I applied to over 60 jobs and internships over the summer. And uh, I got maybe, three acceptances of the 60 that I applied to. Um, one was working on salamanders, one was working on geese in Alaska, um, but most of the things I didn't get. And it's important to just keep trying, to just keep asking. And if there's something that you really wanna do that, that uh, like with all of your soul, then just keep trying at it because uh, the, the importance of not giving up in a competitive field like wildlife biology, it isn't as competitive if you are a trier. And so it's just, just reach out for help. Just talk to people. It's, it's, it's such, such an important thing to do, to, to put a face to, to the words there, to, to just show up. It's, it's, it will really help you in the long run. I appreciate that, Jeremy. And I hope some of the students from the University of Guelph for listening in and maybe other folks who've been listening to this podcast can pick up on that and use that advice. I wanted to thank you both so much for not only for being on the show, I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, but for sharing your work with the world to, to teach us and others about the, the landscapes that we live in and those who we share this land with and helping us learn to live better with that wildlife and help us, yeah, help us understand their ecologies better so that we can be better neighbors and, and, and do better at, at our work as being neighbors to this wilder world around us. I really appreciate it. And I, I thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. I appreciate it a lot. Well, we Thanks really for having us. Greatly appreciate your invitation to be on the show and uh, have a discussion today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to, to Know the Land on 93.3 FM or perhaps your favorite podcast station or maybe you're listening at knowtheland.com. If you have any ideas for shows or feedback, you can always email me at knowtheland at gmail.com and have a good week.